Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome to another edition of Tent Talks, which is the interview part of our Tent Theology Podcast series, where, as you know, I like to try and find people who are actually living out a renewed social and political imagination, and they're not just talking about it. Because Protestants like to think that writing about the thing is the same as doing it, and we know that that's not actually true, which is why I always have my radar up for people who I think need to be heard and seen by others, even if they themselves are not jumping up and down trying to be heard and seen. And one of those people is Aaron White. Aaron White currently joins us from Canada. He is the co-director, co-national director for 24-7, the Social Justice and Prayer Network movement. He is also the author of Recovering from Brokenness and Addiction to Blessedness and Community, a new book out now, just out this week, I think, in fact, published by Baker Academic. Aaron, I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Now, uh, co-director. I don't think I know a whole lot of people who are co-direct, co-national directors. Can you tell us, first of all, what is a co-national director? And then what is 24-7? That's what we're going to ask, first of all. Sure. Well, I mean, 24-7 prayer is a 21-year-old, I think it is now, um, prayer, mission, and justice movement started in the UK um, sort of accidentally. The idea was, what if we took prayer seriously? What if we, um, like the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray? And, uh, and Jesus seemed to take that seriously. So it started popping up all over the place. The name was even accidental. Like, what if we prayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And then just kind of extended it around the world. Largely a youth movement to begin with. Now it's grown up a little bit. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm part of the, the Canadian version of that, where we, we seek to, I think the tagline is, uh, revive the church and rewire the culture or something like that. And, and, and our, our motto is prayer, mission, and justice. Because you know, we think that prayer that doesn't lead to mission and justice probably wasn't prayer. Um, but mission and justice done without prayer is um, extraordinarily dangerous. As Thomas Merton said, that without contemplation, without this, the secret silent pursuit of truth, our action loses itself in the world and becomes dangerous. So we think we, we ground everything in this intimate relationship with God, and then uh, we go where he tells us. So yeah, so I've been part of that in Canada for the last... Uh, 20 years and okay. leading it for the last three or four years. Um, but I never desire to kind of be in that, that always in that national director position. So uh, there's uh, a lady, Dorielis Friesen, who is uh, her family is refugees from Venezuela. And she came on board a couple of years ago and kind of, I instantly was like, this person really should, uh, should be leading Canada. Um, not myself. So uh, we're in that process of, of, sharing and and uh you know i'm just trying to get out of the way did you used to live in the uk aaron or where did you find out about the 24 7 movement i lived in the uk for a year uh in 99 2000 i was part of a salvation army training program called the timothy program with russell rook and phil wall uh lived in wimbledon um worked in morden uh and uh and we were given an option in that training is there anybody you'd like to go and hang out with and i had kind of encountered Pete Gregg at some point, and I said, ah, Pete, he wasn't known, really, and I said, oh, I'd like to hang out with Pete, so kind of encountered it that way, again, almost accidentally. Ah, see, I, 
our paths could have crossed, but never did because I was living in Guildford around that time when the 24-7 was starting. But I wasn't part of it. I didn't know it at all. I, that wasn't the world that I knew anything of, but I was living in the place where it all happened. And <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I used to work in, in Wimbledon. I was the assistant stage manager for a couple of operas in Wimbledon Theatre. Can you imagine? Well, we put on a, a Christmas thing in one of the Wimbledon theaters. So we may have, you know, <laughs> in nineteen. So you might, we might have been passing each other as I was moving well some, some stuff out of the theater and you yeah. were moving stuff in. Who knows? <laughs> and so now we're in Canada. Canada's a very big country. Aaron, where do you actually live in Canada? I live in Vancouver. Um, and specifically in Vancouver, I live in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is a sort of socio-political economic area uh that that the maps and and like the 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 guides tell you not to go to yeah um you know it has all these nicknames canada's poorest postal code there are the major crossroads is maine and hastings they call it pain and wastings it's kind of like it's the area that that vancouver sort of shudders to think of um yeah but, but it's our home and we think it's beautiful and i actually wouldn't i probably wouldn't live anywhere else in vancouver to, to our listeners, can you explain a little bit more wh- why it is such a no-go area? And then I'd like to hear, more importantly, why you think it's so beautiful. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a confluence of events in the 80s, really. I mean, it's it's long been a um, a working-class area, but confluence of events where there was a national housing program that was shuttered in the 80s. Okay. At the same time, a number of the mental health facilities that weren't good, but they were kind of residential mental health facilities, were closed down. And nothing was put in their place. So you had a bunch of people who were in significant uh, mental health peril um, mm-hmm. with nowhere to live no, and ended up on the streets. At the same time, uh, the kind of crack ep- epidemic and then the heroin epidemic hit the streets. And so and plus HIV and AIDS. So you kind of had this huge series of events that was, in a sense, socially controlled that people had to be in this neighborhood. A lot of my friends, when I say, how did you get to this neighborhood? is that the police brought us here. And I've witnessed it where we've been, we've done actions and so on outside the neighborhood and the police don't bother me, but my indigenous friends, uh, they'll say, what are you doing here? What are you doing in this neighborhood? They want them to be in the downtown east side. So that's kind of the, the neighborhood. And it's, it's like, they used to call it the 24 block. There's 24 blocks. Now it's a lot smaller. It's about 12 or 14 blocks. A very concentrated homelessness dual diagnosis, so mental health diagnosis and uh, addiction uh, diagnosis, um, significantly impacted by the fentanyl opioid crisis, uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying, mm-hmm. 67 overdoses a day in the last month. And, and, and you know, I had HIV AIDS transmission, the same as Botswana. Like, it's just, it's a really kind of significantly broken area in the midst of fantastic wealth. Uh, and and privilege, then um, that's that's probably the hardest part of it. And for a lot of people, because there's poverty all, all around the world, but poverty concentrated in one small piece of land, surrounded by opulence, is quite difficult to manage. Socially and socially constructed too. I mean, they've is it sort of a bit like the Wire Bunny Town, where they just sort of marked off a section of the city and just said basically you can just do what the hell you want in that place and we won't bother you, but. Yeah, a little bit. Where and the drug laws are suspended in certain areas, and the police have a different approach to this area. But interestingly, now you know the, the rhetoric used to be we we don't want a downtown east side, or we don't want the downtown east side flowing into the rest of Vancouver. Now the rhetoric is why do they get to live there? 
because Vancouver is such a development market, such yeah, a right. desire to, you know, where is the last place to develop? Well, it's the downtown east side. Right. So okay. now the rhetoric is all, why do, why do they get to be there in this prime real estate? You know, like, well, well that's where they were put. There was no other place to go and no other neighborhood wants them. So what drew you to that place and why, why is it beautiful to you? We, so my family and I began uh, in, back in Canada when we came back from the UK. We were um, working with a thing called 614, Salvation Army Ministry called 614, um, based on Isaiah 61.4. They will rebuild. You, you only work for organizations named with numbers. I That's know. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> people, yeah, people are off. They're like, is that the postal code? Is that the 614th? No, it's just it's Isaiah 61.4. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. And and that was in Toronto, in Regent Park in Toronto, which is another kind of, was a very depressed area. And then uh, heard about what was going on in Vancouver, which is my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Vancouver and worked in the courts and the prisons and shelters down here. So we were kind of deciding, is this where we should go? And then uh, we found out that my wife was pregnant with our third child. And that was kind of the prophetic cue for us, that we knew we had to move to the downtown east side with our children because God sets the lonely in families. And so you need to have family there mm-hmm. and extend that notion. And so that's, that's why we ended up here and, and haven't left. Um, partly, you know, we came as most people come to areas like this to bring Jesus to the poor. And then we're distressed to discover that Jesus was already here and the poor already knew him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what do, what do we do? Um, and so the last 17 years has been more of a discovery of how we meet Jesus in this place versus how we bring Jesus to this place. And, and there's an element where we're carrying, you know, the, the, the believers, the brothers and sisters of Jesus carry Jesus where they go. But we also discover Jesus where we go, that he mm-hmm. we can't go anywhere where he hasn't already been. We can't dig deep enough and not discover him. So uh, that's where we're finding Jesus here. And do you, now, OK, this is this is this is yeah, I'm asking an autobiographical so close to home kind of question. Like listeners to this podcast will know that just the word Christian itself is just one that's become so problematic that, I mean, I basically don't even like to use it anymore, you know? So how do you, what is your relationship to Christianity, perhaps square quotes, scare quotes, I don't know, and the church when you're doing your work, are you, are you, are you a Christian organization? Are you a church parachurch organization? What's your relationship to? Yeah. For the, for the, for about 15 years, we were working under the umbrella of the Salvation Army. And it was, the Salvation Army has a whole other set of terminology. So they never, they didn't used to call themselves churches. It was corps and they didn't call themselves pastors. It was officers or soldiers. So we adopted some of that terminology. And then the Salvation Army has shifted where they want to be seen as a church and have pastors and ordination, all that kind of stuff. And we never really bought into that. And I would never call myself a pastor or call what we did a church. Um, unless the people of our neighborhood gave us that title. So some people would say, this is the church I go to, and that would be fine. Or still, to this day, when I walk around, people call me pastor. I've never called myself a pastor. I don't wish to be one. But mm. um, but that's how they. That's the wording they understand, so that's fine. I don't care. Right. Um, but I just put no stock in that. I, I, yeah. I, I just don't care, because I think that our our typical understanding of what church is has really developed alongside a very cultural model of church that we have a hard time imagining outside of. And so for years, we never did anything on Sunday morning because we thought it was a bit of a trap that, mm-hmm. you know, you, it was sort of like a Christian trap that you do the thing on the Sunday morning, you're sorted for the week, you've, you've, you've ticked the box, you've done the thing. 
So we said, we won't do anything Sunday morning. We'll do stuff every other day of the week and we'll just have Sundays free to do whatever. Um, and we'll pray nonstop. We'll pray 24 hours a day. We'll do cell group meetings in parks and in slum hotels and in people's living rooms and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So we just did that. And, um, and that worked well. But then we found that a, a lot of the guys I was working with in addictions, they actually just had Sunday mornings available that the rest of the time wasn't. So we said, okay, well, we'll be uncool and we'll meet Sunday morning. I didn't really ever want to do that. Yeah. And I dreaded it every Saturday night until about Sunday at 1045. And we started meeting at 1030. So about, by about 15 minutes in, I'm like, okay, this is all right. Um, because our, because our, our gathering was filled with guys who were sometimes a day, sometimes not even a day, you know, clean from drugs, whatever. And, and they were just shouting out their testimony of hope and healing and life and freedom and guys coming straight out of jail. So it's like probably, probably 60% of our congregation met Jesus in jail. Um, so, you know, real captive audience in that way. And it was just, you know, it was really just, uh, it was beautiful. Um, but it became very difficult to maintain within the structure of the church, the Salvation Army and so on. So um, we've even kind of laid that down and said, we just want to be good neighbors. We want to pray and we want to be good neighbors. I don't really, I don't use the term Christian as my my starting point with anybody. I just try and say, you know, I, I'm a follower of the way of Jesus, but I want to be a good neighbor. And I pray. Yeah. And then what happens when you try and communicate this to other Christian groups or churches that do call themselves Christians and they do say we're with the church as their opening salvo. <laughs> I, I had a, a revelation a few years ago. I'm at my worst when I'm driving in traffic. Okay. I'm really, really bad with that. I'm not very Christian. And I, you know, if, if the typical evangelical kind of scare model is true, and at the end of all time, there'll be a big film of all the bad things we've done the shown track. Before, yeah. Yeah, before all creation, there'll be a lot of footage in my car. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you called that person to this, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I put an explicit language warning on all the, on these podcasts, Do you? by the way. Okay, you can say right. whatever you want. <laughs> okay. So, but I, then I realized, I was in traffic and, and I realized, oh, I'm not in traffic. I am traffic. Yeah. You know, and that was a big shift. I'm not, I'm part of the problem. I'm not, yeah. I'm not right. divorced from this thing. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. There is sort of a church shaped hole in my head and my heart, you know, that, that still kind of sits there. So we, you know, we've been ministering to people on the edges of church or outside the church for a long time. And we were having a discernment time of prayer um, about a year and a half ago for 24 seven we said, God, what do you want us to do? And, and uh, we just really discern God saying, um, would you reach out to pastors? Okay. I'm, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I, I, I'm very comfortable having drug dealers at my table. Yeah. Far less so having senior pastors at my table. And God um, said, no, I, I want you to be with the lost, the last, and the least. Go to the pastors. 100%. 100%. That's how, yeah. you know, because. Yeah. Go to the people who know Jesus the least. They're like, can you. <laughs> Can you, you've shown that you love those who are hurting on the outside of the church. Can you love those who are hurting on the inside of the church? Can you do that? Because okay. okay. Jesus loves them. And so I've started, you know, we started doing that. And honestly, I, when I go to, a, to talk to a pastor now, I, I never ask about their ministry. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uninterested, um, largely because, you know, they, people are doing good things. They're doing bad things. They're doing whatever, indifferent things. It doesn't matter. Um, but pastors are broken. Like they are desperate. They are lonely. 
They are uh, secret sinners. They, they have nobody to talk to. Their prayer life is marginal at best. And so I just usually start saying, hey, how's your prayer life? And can I pray with you? And is there anything you want to talk to me about? And pastors just start crying because they got, they got nobody to talk to. So, you know, my, my heart does, and my, God has been softening my heart towards people, not towards the system. I, I'm, I think we're okay to be hard towards the system, right. um, the structure. But I think I have to be very careful not to be bitter, resentful, hard towards the people whom Jesus loves. And so I want, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do kind of an in-reach, if you like. Um, and prayer is, you know, everybody's like, yeah, I want to pray more. I'm like, great, because I just want to introduce you to Jesus. You know, people want techniques for prayer. And I just want to say, hey, meet Jesus. But this is, and, and follow him. This is what prayer means. I mean, why? What, what's so great about Jesus then? <laughs> he, yeah, it's funny because it's not a question that would ever be asked in the evangelical church, I think, but really should be. You know, why yeah, are we exactly. trying to follow this? Exactly. You know, there was that, um, that challenge. You're the not law. trying to get people to join your club or join your movement or join your recruit people for your culture war. What's yeah. the point? Yeah. What, what is this Jesus guy? Uh, yeah. There was a, a Facebook challenge a little while ago. It said, describe your job badly. Okay. And I said, I try and introduce people to an executed criminal and try and get people to follow in his way. Right. You know, like that's, that seems crazy. Um, because, uh, you know, I genuinely believe that we were made, we were created to be in intimate relationship with God and to do good things. I, I think that's the story of Genesis, is that we we're made to be in intimate relationship, but also to be agents of God's kingdom, what he's doing in the world that's fighting against darkness and void and chaos and, and all this stuff, which I see all around me. And, uh, and I see God kind of, you know, creating his his people out of that and then jesus comes along and he and i think he says come and join my life come in i mean he invites us to join in the divine life we often take the sermon on the mount as you know either a, a, a an ethical thing that we can't really do yeah or you know just jesus saying here's a great life that you have failed at so you're a sinner so right. you just need my grace i don't see it like that at all i see it as jesus saying look at my life this is how i'm living and I'm inviting yeah. you into it, and I'm empowering yeah. you to live with me and to walk with me in this blessed and that life. Life is salvation. It is. That's exactly. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. we miss it so much. Peter in the Book of yeah. Acts, when he preaches his first sermon, you know, yeah. that there's a whole bit missing from those those four spiritual laws or whatever they are. You know, like you know, come and meet Jesus, and he'll forgive you. And okay, yes, but Peter also mentions the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know? And then twice in the first four chapters of the Book of Acts you know, Luke stops to say, oh, and here's what they look like. Here's how they lived. Yes. And this is what the church, this, this is part of salvation. This is what it looks like. Um, Actually, what you do with your money very specifically is, is intimately. I mean, that's the first hurdle. Yeah. A Holy Spirit life. uh, Show me your Holy Spirit life and uh, I'll show you what you do with your money. That's what Luke thinks is important. What you do with your money and what you do with Greek speaking widows. Yeah. Foreigners. Yeah. Foreign, useless people. And you know, useless, I'm using, you know, as yeah, yeah. useless Ethiopian to the... eunuchs and Samaritans and yeah. enemies. Yeah. What do you do with yeah. them? That's, that's the Holy Spirit building the church. Yeah. Racism and money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you've used a couple of words. Can we talk about the word prophet or prophetic? Because you sure. use this word and then you talk about listening to God or praying. 
I'm going to guess that there's two groups of people that listen to, to me or to this podcast. And one group will come are coming from that kind of charismania Bethel kind of crowd. And they use the word prophet all the time. And they're, they're burned out and annoyed because they look at prophets who are conspiracy theorists and Trump supporters. And, and a lot of my listeners are like, that's just crap. I don't have anything to do with that stuff, but I don't know what else there is. Or you get the other type, I guess my, let's call them the progressive progressive liberal types who the word prophetic means kind of nothing really because if you're not doing inclusive social justice work then you know it's the word prophetic means maybe if anything it means doing good yeah good work in the community can you tell me what you think prophetic means or what do you why do you use that word yeah i i think it's an externally important word and and a really um, yeah, misused word. I, I sometimes mm-hmm. use the term social prophetic and some, some friends of mine get kind of, kind of annoyed with me for doing it. And, and it's not perfect because it should just be prophetic. But I, I feel like I have to highlight a little bit so that it doesn't okay. just mean the word of knowledge, you know, stuff. Right. You know, and, and I don't think it doesn't include that. I think there is that. I think that happens. I think the Lord speaks and we can hear and we can speak words of comfort. I believe in inner healing that, that you know, God wants to set us free personally. I've been reading a lot of James Cone and Cornell West recently um, mm-hmm. around the, uh, you know, black liberation theology and Cornell West's sort of critique of that is he says, you know, that's correct to be looking at the world and through a justice lens. But it also needs to address the individual's heart, you know, like hmm. it, if it's just one thing. And, and I've seen this, this division 100% where you have people like it's all about systemic justice. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about sin, but only in terms of systemic sin. And others are right. saying, no, it's only about personal individual sin. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's both. And they're intimately connected. If, right. we, if we don't know the inner healing, you know, inner liberation of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And, how, you know, what from what place are we saying? And he's going to also deal with, you know, these things in the world. But also if I'm just, you know, saying, oh, yeah, Jesus set me free, but he's not he's not worried about racism. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there has to be this connecting piece where we know the freedom, the liberation of Jesus interiorly. But that then moves us into okay. being, you know, living out the reconciliation that Jesus has already affected in the world. And. You know, that's the prayer, mission, and justice piece. That's that's what okay. really what my book's about is, um, you know, th- what what causes addiction. There's an inner brokenness, but there's also a societal brokenness that makes it really difficult to deal with all this stuff. And we have to approach both. So uh, prophetic to me is is uh, is receiving the word of God as individuals, but also understanding this is a communal and a societal word that God is speaking into the world through His liberated people. And they're meant to be primarily speaking that word uh, as an example of that reconciliation, as an example of that new kind of prophetic kingdom, that new kind of prophetic nation. And where we don't, where we aren't living that out, we have no word to say. We got no business talking. What about the whole, um, the idea of the kind of Jeremiah, Jeremand, you're literally a Jeremand of a a prophet standing on the outside, sort of shouting in. Mm -hmm. Where's the role for that? Or where's the place for that? Yeah, I think that absolutely is still there. I mean, there's a different authority given, I think, to the prophet in the Hebrew scriptures than there is in the New Testament scriptures. I'm suspecting that the the church is meant to be kind of a prophet in the same mm-hmm. way that Jeremiah is a prophet. 
Right. The church needs to be speaking as one. It means to be speaking in unity in Christ to, in order to do that. Um, so I think we have to be careful. I think there's still absolutely place for that where we should be speaking. And then the church needs to weigh those words. It needs to discern those words. So I know a few Jeremiah's in my life, and I probably am one of them. And, uh, and, and I mean, it's in the New Testament as well, absolutely. I mean, John the Revelator is definitely speaking that over the churches of mm-hmm. Asia. And, you know, Paul does that in with especially the Church of Corinth and so on. So I think it's there and we need to do it. I think, uh, you know, we've we've talked in the past about um, good buddy Soren Kierkegaard and and his word of despair to the mm-hmm. church. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's bad. It's a hard thing to be in despair, but it's a worse thing to not know that you're in despair. And so yeah, right. part of the role of, I think, the prophets in this day is to say to the church, hey, uh, we should actually be despairing, but there's hope yeah. out of it, you know, but right. but we have to lament first. Yeah. Where where have you been lamenting recently? Oh, man. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long season of lament, to be honest. Yeah. Um. It's been a really shit time. <laughs> yeah, it's not been. I mean, not just the COVID piece. In some ways, you know, it's just it's a shaking. It's a revelation. I think uh, yeah. of what the church really is and what what is re- what really matters. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of all this, you know, we've had one month we had 175 people die of overdose, not of yeah. COVID, of over- overdose in this neighborhood. Yeah. So I, you know, we lament that. Um, I lament the idolatry. That people that my you know I'm I'm aware of it in my own heart, but the idolatries that I see in the church around nationalism and political partisanship, I mean I just think it's demonic, it's horrific. Um, that that every time you know a, another African American person gets shot, mm-hmm. there's an immediate response of trying to find out what a bad guy he was. Yeah, and, right. And why why it was right that he was shot? I mean, this is yeah. just evil. That's just the Satan. Yeah. That's just the accuser. Yeah. That is just. I mean, I don't. There's any. To me, there's no doubt that that is just the spirit of accusation coming yeah. straight from the pits of hell. And we need right. to repent of this. It's not yeah. just oh, we need to be sad about it. We need to repent of this. Right. Um, we need to repent of our attachments to this kind of worldly power, this desire to be in this place of cultural power, and that's yeah. left and right doesn't matter where you're coming from, like this desire to be this, oh, you know, we've got power and we're going to lord it over people. Jesus says, that's not how you're going to be. Like, mm. you're going to be the opposite of that. And I just, it, this, this, it breaks my heart to see people in the name of Jesus seeking worldly power. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. I've seen people just gleefully reporting deaths from churches that broke the law and gathered and died of COVID. Right. You know, that's not okay. You can't, oh, I'm so glad that they died. Christians, I'm so glad that those church people died. It serves them right. That's not all right either. You know, right. there, there's just such a lack of charity in the sense of love mm-hmm. um, for our people that it doesn't seem Christ-like at all to me. So I'm lamenting mm-hmm. all kinds of things. I mean, tell us about, it's, it's your book, which I've, I've noticed that you use the word lament a lot in your book. So tell us about recovery. Tell us about this book. And then I want to ask you about some other stuff that I found while flipping through it. I should sure. say, I, your book arrived this morning in the post, so I haven't had time to read it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. No, that's, okay. that's all right. Tell us about the book. Uh, where did it come from, and and who should be reading this book? So, yeah, I, I was in a. I was actually in my truck and just sitting and praying and about to go to a meeting, and I, I was ready to leave my job, kind of with the Salvation Army. 
Mm. I thought, and I was just thinking, I, th- I think I should write a book. I think I've got one in me. And I was going to write one on radical soul care, on the idea of how do you care for people who are trying to minister really outside the walls of the church and in really difficult places. I felt like I could speak with some authority there. And then I got a, an email from somebody saying, hey, you know, we, we're interested in somebody writing a book on this topic, on recovery, okay. how to pastor people through recovery. And I thought, yeah, I actually could write that too. And it took a little while because I, I didn't have all the qualifications they wanted, but um, they, they want, it's part of this series called Pastoring, what's it called? Pastoring uh, for Life series. Um, mm-hmm. Jason Biasi is the, the editor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, they look at a bunch of different kind of topics. You know, how do you pastor well? And they want to want to recover. They didn't know anybody who could really do that. Someone who had the authentic life experience of doing that. And I did. Yeah. Um, and who could write. So, so, but I didn't really want to write, I didn't want to write a how to guide of how to take somebody through, you know, because everybody's so different and it, there's no typical person mm-hmm. in recovery. So uh, what I really wanted to write was what is the kind of community that Jesus has called us to? And I figured if we get that right, then we'll be the kind of community that, that people in recovery not only can find themselves home in, but actually mm-hmm. can bless. Um, because what I have discovered over 25 years of working with people in addictions and recovery is that there's far more spiritual work happening there than in most churches I've ever encountered. There's more work around lament and confession and making amends and being honest and surrender. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is one of the guys, he wanted to go to church, but he's like, I don't know from all the churches that I've experienced, they don't understand what surrender means. I'm like, you're 100% correct. They don't. And that's the starting point of the spiritual life. Is that you know poverty of spirit, or yeah. in this in the the twelve step jargon, um, you know it's recognizing that my life is unmanageable. Yeah, you know that's that's step one. There's no you can't do anything without getting there. Yeah, right. right. So it's really kind of applying. And all this that. guy couldn't find a single church that understood that. No, I mean, yeah, no, he couldn't. And I'm and I'm like, step I, one. I, yeah. I affirm you in that because yeah, because yeah. we don't. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I've talked to groups before when you know, usually young, young adults. And I'll say like, um, you know, does anybody here have a secret sin? You know, they'll all put their hand up. And I go, anybody want to, you know, talk about that? You know, what, do you ever talk about that in church? Like, no. Do you think everybody else in church has a secret sin life? Yeah. Then why won't you talk about it? You know, what if every time somebody wanted to talk in church, they had to announce their first name and their greatest temptation or failing or their greatest sin? What if they had, yeah. they'd be like, well, there'd be a lot of silence in church. I'm like, well, that's a 12-step meeting. Yeah, You know, it exactly. starts from this place of deep humility. Yeah, right. I recognize I got a problem. Right. We don't start there in church. So yeah. I wanted to write a book where the, where I've kind of pitched it with people is I want people to listen to, um, you know, St. Uh, Basil the Great and my friend Rob, who has been an addict to crack for a lot of years. Because mm-hmm. they're saying kind of the same thing. Um, and, and to bring that together, who's it for? I mean, it's, it's meant for people, it's meant for pastors and people in seminary to give them some idea around this stuff. But honestly, I've been just giving it out to most of my friends Mm -hmm. down here. Um, you know, some of whom are barely literate and they'll read up to the point though. Like one guy, his story's on page 70 and he, he comes the next day, he goes, I read to my story, you know? So that's, I think it's for everybody. My hope is it's for everybody. Do you have a do you have a personal or a family connection to these issues? To addiction? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, my grandpa came back from the war, from World War II. And before he he had been kind of a 
he'd been involved in the Salvation Army. He'd been, by all accounts, a good godly man. And uh, just came back a very angry, violent, bitter alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, my my dad had a really hard time growing up with him. And then he became sort of an alcoholic as well. And okay. so they were both at different bars in the downtown east side at different times. Okay. Um, you know, kind of raising hell. While my grandma was doing work for the Salvation Army in the courts and the prisons in the downtown east side. So there's a pretty big family history there. My yeah. dad, uh, I never knew my dad as an alcoholic. He, um, he, he was sort of, he was liberated uh, before mm-hmm. that. And at the end of his life, my grandpa was as well. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of brokenness there in our family. And then there seems to be almost a manual for prophetic, action or prophetic living in this book as i've been following it flipping it around yeah. flipping through it uh, can you tell us about the the shopping mall oh geez yeah the jesus walk <laughs> it yeah so and where what's the context of that in terms of tell us about it but also i'm interested in the context of it in terms of recovery yeah so i i, I was working with a, a bunch of youth many of whom were not church still Hmm. And we were just exploring a lot of different things. And one of them, we were kind of like around consumerism, materialism. You know, what's that about? What's going on? So Hmm. we decided we had heard about this thing. Some people called it a zombie walk. Other called it a Jesus walk. I I would have been happy with either. Um, Jesus is kind of a zombie. (laughs) Well, he's reanimated. You know, he's brought back from the dead. I think there's slight differences between George Romero and the the New Testament. But um, so we decided we'd gather in this mall at Christmas time, the biggest mall. We actually did a practice run in a local mall, and it went great. Okay. Um, then we decided to meet in Metrotown Mall, which is the uh, uh, the biggest mall kind of in Vancouver area. And we Christmas time, so the busiest time, we'd get in a big long line and we walk as slowly as we could through the mall. Mm. That's it. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, within and there was more. It was me and then a bunch of teens. Mm-hmm. And within five minutes, we were surrounded by a phalanx of security guards, mall okay. security guards, you know, the the um, mall the, cops, the mall cops, the kind of the front line against anarchy, you know, um, yeah. and they were furious. They were just so just just vein poppingly angry. You know, mm-hmm. we could hear in their radio saying there's this, this anarchist group that's trying to I'm like, well. I mean, yes, yeah, sort of, but <laughs> yeah, not really organized. Uh, and they would—they were screaming at me to get out of the mall. Yeah, and I'm like, "Well, we're going. We're leaving the mall. Show us the best way to get out." And they'd point, and we'd say, "Okay," and we'd carry on just as slowly as we could. Yeah. And one guy who was stomping his feet and going, "Walk normal," and yeah. our response was, "What's normal?" You know, all this stuff, and just led them on a merry chase to the middle. Not not much of a chase because they we were walking slowly. And they were screaming at the teens. They took their cameras. They're just being horrific. Hmm. Got to the middle of the mall and, and they said, uh, I then gathered the teens up and said, well, why were they so angry with you? And they said, oh, because um, we weren't shopping. We were distracting people. They couldn't control us. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of look at that in, in the terms of, um, you know, what are the things that we're addicted to? When we think of addiction, we often think of crack, heroin, alcohol, these kind of things. And those are significant, significant problems. But culturally, we are, we're addicted to materialism. I mean, we're addicted to Amazon. What has got people, what has got, got us through this quarantine? People are just clicking on Amazon and buying stuff. 
You know, yeah. this is a societal cultural attachment and addiction that we need liberation from everybody yeah. as much as alcoholism. And so I was just trying to show the teens, like you've learned everything you need to know about a mall today, that they, right. you are not a full human. You are a consumer. And the yeah. moment you stop being that, they don't want you here. The yeah. moment you set yourself free from these things. It's your problem. And so I think that's just part of the way that the church is called to live in a really you know, right angle to the world. That You're allowed uh, to use the word prophetic now. I think that's an appropriate <laughs> word. Live prophetically. I think we're meant yeah. to have these prophetic communities that just look weird. Yes. Um, we're, we're doing some teaching here at Jacob's Well where we're saying, you know, what does it mean to... What's Jacob? Sorry, what's Jacob's Well? Jacob's Well is, is this local faith community I'm part of now. It's, it's really okay. lovely and beautiful. It's a block from my house. It's, it's where I'm sitting right now. It's, it's perfect. Um, where we, we do some teaching to the church from this place. And we're talking about what does it mean to become friends of God? What does mm. it mean to become friends of one another, like our neighbors? And what does it mean to unbecome friends of the world or unbecome friends of these hostile, harmful powers that seek to yeah. enslave us and enslave our friends and hurt our friends? So it's that's part of the prophetic action. Uh, are you finding fellow travelers? Who are some of your fellow travelers or like-minded fellows that you've noticed around the world well i get to chat with uh bob ekblad on on the regular okay. which is a lot of okay. fun uh you know he he's a he would hate me calling him a hero of mine and i think heroism is a dangerous thing but um somebody who i think has walked further down the road than i have him and him and gracie so that's really wonderful and getting to introduce them into the 24 7 world and and introduce 24 7 to them uh, so that's a lot of fun. I have some local neighbors who, who've also been living this out for a lot of years. Um, the St. Chiara Society is across the street from us, and they've done some beautiful, wonderful things. Almost everybody who is on the fringes of church yeah. um, that I've, I've found in those places, and a lot of uh, what I'd call occasional mentors, that'd be people who I read. You know? yeah. I have really good friends down in Manenberg in South Africa uh in uh in sort of the cape town area and okay. got to go and spend a, a week and a half down there and in in a place where when i was getting it's off the pete, plane pete portal pete portal yeah when oh, i was getting I off pete, the plane yeah. they're like the people was like well where are you going in cape town i said well manenberg they're like oh no don't don't you shouldn't go there but i loved it. i mean it was just right up my alley it's, i, yeah. I love doing that and working with the international association for refugees um as well that's you know that's right where I, where my heart is. So there's there's people doing this stuff and people doing it much more authentically than I am. But um, you have to search for them a little bit. Yeah, and you don't find them in your evangelical churches, I'm afraid. Well, it's hard. It's not that people don't have the desire for it, even. Right. It, it's it's just the the culture is so can be so deadening, can be so yeah. numbing. And again, that trap of thinking we've done it, we've got it, we've sorted it, where where we just, you know, actually God is wanting to penetrate deeper. I read something just this morning by Rich Viodas, who said uh, one of the primary problems of evangelicalism in North America is that we long for Christ to permeate the culture, mm -hmm. but we are resistant to Christ infiltrating our hearts. And mm. so, you know, we, we want to have that cultural power, but we, what are we actually wanting? What do we know? Like, what do we, what do we, who do we want Jesus to be in the culture if we haven't really encountered him? It's pretty yeah. hard to say. And we wouldn't recognize him. Yes, absolutely. It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's pretty transparent what, what modern day 
nationalist Christians would think of Jesus if he was started Oof. walking and talking, right? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so blatant. Yeah. There's a really interesting show, I think it was on Netflix, called uh, Messiah. Yeah, that it, was very good. It looks at that. And I, I a lot of Christians good. got upset with it, naturally. Um, but I thought it was really good that you couldn't win this It was this a guy. brilliant, profound show that evangelical Americans could never produce in a million years, which is precisely why it was so good. <laughs> it was, it was it's so good. Yeah, like, who yeah. is this guy? We don't know. Why won't he tell us what he's about? Well, read Jesus. Yeah. Man, that's what... He, that's what he did. I, I, I loved it. I hope they come. I don't up. think I've ever seen a piece of fiction that seems to have captured what it f- might have felt like to have Jesus walking around yeah. Yeah. in the Gospels. That that same kind of mysticism, mystical, like, I don't mean in mysticism kind of way. I mean, like the mysterious, what is this guy doing? And yeah. he seems to be drawing together such a disparate array of people. What is his politics? What What's is his, his agenda? agenda? Is he a terrorist? You know, this, the, yeah. we only we yeah. have certain categories and the, the, yeah. these very compartmentalized categories yeah. we have to put people yeah. in and he just defies them all as yeah, Jesus nice show. and yeah, I, it was I, fantastic yeah 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 it just seemed to be able to i could tell there's some people behind this who really understand the gospels yeah and they've read them really well in a way like i said i've never encountered an evangelical who could understand the gospels that way mm. because mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting how much our mega charismatic evangelical churches are like shopping malls <laughs> We need some we, more we people. We need a Jesus walk through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do notice that. I mean, tell me about your reading. You're one of the most well-read people I know. What are you reading these days? Or what's what's been on your... Uh, well, I've got some bookmarks in these days. Yeah, so lots. Um, uh, I mean, I've read a lot of James Cone recently, as I was mentioning. Yeah. And I think he's incredibly helpful. I think he's probably... I would argue he's maybe the most important North American theologian of the 20th century. That people need to get their head around the cross and the yeah. lynching tree is the cross and the lynching tree is one I recommend to everybody. It's yeah. phenomenal and it's yeah. challenging. It will hurt your feelings, but read yeah. it. I'm Stand re- there and let him let him let him yeah. punch you in the face and and then say, "I'm going to turn the other cheek. Hit me again, please." Yeah. yeah, and and it's from love. Honestly, it is. I mean, he is yeah, invitational. People think yeah. that he's really exclusive. He's not. He's incredibly invitational. He's incredibly hopeful. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of Will Campbell recently. I don't know if you've come across him at all. Do you know that name, Will Campbell? Yeah. Really interesting guy. I mean, this is someone you should get your head around. He was a Southern Baptist preacher from Mississippi. Okay. And and got caught up in the civil rights movement. Um, ended up working with John, uh, John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. and William Stringfellow, a lot of those folks. Yeah. But, but eventually even got really kind of um, tired of those institutions and, and one of his mottos is all institutions are inherently evil. Yes. And, right, uh, right. you know, this coming from a Southern Baptist preacher from Mississippi is an interesting thing. Yeah, right. And he would, he would say, I'm a, I'm a Southern Baptist preacher without a congregation, um, well, like without a steeple. Yeah. And so he started, he realized at a certain point, if I don't love the Ku Klux Klan, the people in the Ku Klux Klan, as much as I love the people they're hurting, then I can't okay. claim to be Christian. Okay. And so he started reaching out to those guys and he would originally, he got all kinds of death threats and stuff from the right, you know, mm-hmm. because he was, he was, he was involved in integration work and stuff into schools. Then he started getting all the death threats and hate letters from the left because he was hmm. working with, with others. And he just, he's this beautifully, wonderfully anarchic um, Christian thinker who just takes it to the church, but in a place of love, you know, and it's, he's, I think so important. So he wrote Brother to a Dragonfly and then one I'm reading now called um, 
I think it's called S- Smashing the Idols uh, with okay. Richard Good, and it's just a series of his essays. And I think it's he's really important to read. Wow, a one-two punch: James Cohn and Will Will Campbell. Campbell. Yeah. Wow, that's brilliant. Um, Aaron, as we uh, as we bring this conversation to a close, where can people go to find out a little bit more about you, your work, twenty four seven, or any other institution, <laughs> inherently <laughs> evil or not, that yeah. you would like to uh, to send people to? Well, look, I, I am genuinely afraid of all these institutions that I'm involved in. You know, I, yeah. I'm I'm the least, I believe, the least in movements, and I'm part of lots of them. Right. Um, so, and I'm, and that's why I'm not part of the reason why I'm a co-national director is I'm just not very good at like promoting the brand. Um, cause I think brands are incredibly dangerous. I think they become right. idols so quickly. They're principalities for sure. 100%. And, and principalities yeah. and powers are actually meant to be for, for God, for good. They're meant to exactly. care for the poor and the vulnerable. They have a place and a purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. But they just don't yeah. typically, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I witnessed that kind of living through the Salvation Army movement for years. So you know, you can go to 247prayercanada.com and there's all kinds of info there. Uh, you can get the book from Baker Academic or Amazon. I prefer you not to buy it from Amazon if at mm. all possible. Um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and I'm doing some teaching this year, this this fall, on the book through the People's Seminary. So if you look up the People's Seminary, um, it's Bob Ekblad's group. He's doing his certificate in, in transformational ministry on the margins. It's a really clunky name. But he's doing that online, and I'm doing a 10-week webinar on recovering. Um, and that's wow, probably right. the, the best place. I'll be going through the stuff in the book, but it'll be a lot of kind of mutual learning and, um, yeah. and teaching each other on, on the issue of addictions, but more on the issue of what do we need to recover from and how, to, how do we create that. So that's probably the best place to send people, the People's Seminary, and I'm doing the recovering class on that. Aaron White, thank you so much for joining us on the 10th Theology Podcast. And I hope that you will come back again someday soon. Well, I need to, you know, we've never, we've never physically met each other, which is never physically met, which is very (laughs) weird, but like, we're so about, I mean, you've got comics on your back wall that I want to come and read like right now. I love comics and graphic novels. Uh, Well, we'll talk about, come back next time. And we'll talk about comic books and books and novels. Yeah. I think I see the human torch there. That's fantastic. Spider-Man. So yeah, I, I dig all that stuff. Uh, we we need to hang out. And uh, also, did you know I was I'm born in Vancouver. I, I am originally a Vancouverite. So St. Paul's Hospital is that where you're born? Possibly. I think it was uh, Grace. Grace Hospital is no longer Salvation Army yeah. Hospital. That yeah, uh, it? yeah it, well it was no longer yeah, is on, uh, yeah. they they had to give up their their stuff because they wouldn't do abortions. That was actually like a interesting. a really interesting yeah yeah they actually made a principled stand which was fantastic. How interesting. A prophetic institution. At, I think Spirit a... of the West, they sung a song, Goodbye Grace, which was a song about the hospital I was born in. So. Yeah. And that's my one of my favorite bands of all time. The the lead singer unfortunately passed away not too long ago. I know, I know. But I was listening to Jeff Kelly's stuff the other day and I thought, I gotta write that guy a letter. If anybody out here knows who Jeffrey Kelly is and how I can get in touch with him, let me know because and, and a, just a, a shout out to Spirit of the West for everybody watching. Look them up on YouTube. They have the best, the best music writers you've ever heard. The best oh. lyrical lyrics you've never heard before. Yeah. yeah, fantastic stuff. All right, Aaron, that's it. We're gonna, I'm gonna have you back again. We're just gonna talk about pop culture music for an hour. Boston. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> right, but for now, I'm gonna say goodbye to you and goodbye to our listeners, and I look forward to hearing you again in the next week. To further support the show, 
please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.